You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Beth Accomando. Hey, thank you so much. Also back in the booth is Ms. Jess Byard. Hello. 
On this episode, we are looking at John Woo's 1992 film, Hard Boiled. It's the story of a hot-handed super cop tequila, played by Chow Yun-Fat, and an undercover cop, either Alan or Tony, depending Alan. on which version you watch, played by Tony Leung. Tony and Tequila are working two sides of the same case involving the dastardly Johnny Wong, played by the dastardly, no, he's a nice guy, played by Anthony Wong. More than being a case of cops and robbers, the film is a farewell to the Hong Kong that Wu once knew, and a farewell before emigrating to the U.S. for the next phase of his career. We will be spoiling the film as we go along, so if you haven't seen Hard Boiled, for gosh sakes, just go out and do it right now, and come on back, we will still be here. So Beth, when was the first time you saw Hard Boiled, and what did you think? This was part of a festival that Landmark Theaters was doing. It was a Hong Kong film festival, and it was Jackie Chan and John Woo and Choi Hawk, and there were all these films together that I was not familiar with at the time, and I got to see them, and I was blown away, and I was so addicted that I found this karaoke store in San Diego that had laser discs. And the guy who ran it was a huge fan of Hong Kong movies. And so I said, I just saw these movies for the first time. Like, what else can I get? And so he hooked me up. We would, he would go through these laser discs and he would just plow through them and go like, boom, 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 boom. These are like your first films that you need to see. And I can't remember the timing exactly. And I don't remember if this happened before I saw those, but the incredibly strange film show with Jonathan Ross, he did a segment on John Woo and another segment just on Asian cinema at the time. And seeing clips from like Chinese Ghost Story and a couple of other films, I was so hooked at that moment where I was going like, where are they making these movies? Like, where can I see more of this? And yeah, I was immediately addicted. And Jess, how about yourself? Uh, when I watched it for this podcast <laughs> was the first time that I saw it. And yeah, I, I admit that, uh, that Hong Kong films are a huge blind spot for me, which is why I was excited to be on this episode because I wanted to watch more movies in that uh, vein. If this is a great representation of what the rest of the Hong Kong films have to offer, then I am definitely on board. This one might actually be a little tamer than some of the other ones, I would think. Awesome. That's even better. <laughs> yeah. I I mean, I'm definitely going to be making a lot of comparisons between this and the heroic trio, especially when it comes to baby trauma. We'll get there. I imagine when we did our episode on The Killer, I talked a little bit about my introduction to John Woo, but I think this might have been the second one of his films that I saw. And this coming out in 92 was like the perfect time for this because I was just getting into Hong Kong cinema and 92 was right about the time when I found a grocery store that had VHS tapes and I would just go through there and Luckily, I didn't have to spend much money. I didn't have to buy those laser discs that you were buying, Beth. But, <laughs> but I, I definitely rented my fair share of VHS tapes and watched just a ton of Hong Kong films. And man, oh man, I have been lucky enough to get to see this theatrically. I've seen several different cuts of it, and we'll talk about that later on as well. But man, oh man, this is right up there for me. Like 
top three woo for me is The Killer, This, and A Better Tomorrow. And I'm not sure if this beats out A Better Tomorrow or not. I'm not really into making a list that much, but definitely it's up there for me because, man, this really just does a, a great job of, of satisfying that need for ultraviolence and melodrama and just the... The more I think about this film, the more I think that Wu was almost making Chow Yun-Fat into a superhero, especially the way that he flies around the screen. It's almost like he's doing wire work in this film, even though I don't think that he is. Well, do you remember around that time, too? Because I remember trying to get those Hong Kong films early on. Comic-Con was the place to get them. Those VHS tapes that had the little disclaimer, like, this is being traded from fan to fan. And some of the fan dubs or or fan subtitled films were better than the Laserdisc ones. Like, the the subtitles actually made sense. Because some of those... Those laser discs had the craziest subtitles on them. First of all, they went by like this fast. And then some of the translations were like, whoa, what did, what did he just say? <laughs> like, no. But I remember those, those, those hand printed, like those hand printed VHS covers and like scouring around and trying to find the films that you wanted. And it was so hard early on to get the films. Well, it's almost like we've reached that point again because, yes, some of them have been released on DVD, but finding some of these earlier titles is just, it's getting to the point where it's like, wow, I really want to see this movie. Why can't I find a decent version of it? Why do I have to now go to the torrent sites and try my best to find stuff there? Why can't I find this on DVD or Blu-ray, it, it's really difficult. Things like dddhouse.com, which I used to go to all the time, it's like everything is just out of stock. Come on, guys. Like, that was the play that or like Yes Asia or a few other websites. Yes it's Asia. Like, okay, great. I can go there. I can pick it up for 12 bucks, something like that. Fantastic. And now, yeah, forget about it. And VCDs. Remember those video CDs where you'd get? <laughs> oh, yeah. I still have plenty of those. That was the only way to watch a few of those films. It was honestly just intoxicating to watch those movies. And I remember after um, we had watched a bunch of them, I had gone up to LA to do an interview with one of the Hong Kong people. And my friend drove me. And I remember we were driving through Chinatown and he was looking at people walking by and he goes like, I don't understand why they walk when they can fly. Like, it was this feeling of after watching these movies, you just had this whole other kind of perception of just like another reality going on. But they were just, man, and like one after the other, like I I was not disappointed by hardly anything that I pulled out. Granted, I had a very good mentor who was like going through these films and, and picking stuff out for me, but I just kept going like, they can't be more films like that are this good. And then no, there are. And then like, okay, there can't be like more wacky films than this. And, no, there are. Believe it or not. Yeah. It's just, it's a never ending. Well, there's a, a person that I follow on Twitter who does, he'll, post little clips of things. And whenever he posts something, I'm just like, I have to see this. Whatever you're posting from, I have to see this. And so I now have this never-ending list of all of these things that, okay, I might have heard of 20% of these, but the other 80%, no, I've never heard of them before. And now I have to see these movies. An amazing amount of talent there. I don't know what it is about Hard Boiled. When I was going out and looking for scholarly materials on Hard Boiled, it was 
really difficult to find stuff. Better Tomorrow, there has been books written on it. The Killer, same thing. Bullet in the Head, same thing. Once a Thief, no, but that's okay. But when it comes to Hard Boiled, it's like, hey, you know, this is one of the major things for me when it comes to woo. And it's so rich with so many things going on in it. And I was unable to find that much. I did find, um, you know, Kenneth Hall's got his book about woo and I dove into that. And then I almost regretted it because I didn't ever realize how choppy the screenplay is. And I finally found out that Barry Wong, the screenwriter actually died during the middle of writing this. And so there were a lot of like, we'll just make it up as we go along or here's this opening set piece. And you know what? We're going to go back and rewrite the script. (laughs) So like the undercover cop at the tea house, it never really dawned on me how many people he kills until I was reading that article. And I was like, oh, yeah, he kills a lot of people. That's really not good for an undercover cop. And then the way that I think like the way that uh, the police chief talks about him changes from one scene to another. And it's like, OK, so there are some things that don't necessarily add up. Like I always wondered about the uh, the gas at the end when they're in the uh, the basement of the hospital. I was like, wow, if that's poison gas, they sure have been in there a long time. And then I'm listening to the audio commentary and was like, yeah, it was supposed to be poison gas. And then I changed my mind. It's just the fire suppression system. I'm like, OK, well, that makes more sense, I guess. Did he change his mind while he was doing it on set or did they change in the script? <laughs> I think he might have changed it in the edit. But you know what? Here's the thing about action films for me. I mean, one of the reasons I love things like The Raid and John Wick is you only need the barest of plot to get the ball rolling. And if you deliver kick-ass action, nobody cares about anything else. And John Woo had that mastered and hard-boiled. Like, yeah, you can go back and go like, whoa, what exactly was going on there? And how come like this doesn't quite make sense? But when you're watching it, your breath is just taken away. Your jaws on the ground because you're just going like, oh, my God. And you're just blown away by everything. I mean, I still get goosebumps when tequila swoops in in the warehouse or when he slides down the banister with two guns blaring like I still, to this day, you know, I get like goosebumps going. And I remember I, I, every time I was having like a bad day at work and was really pissed off, I would come home and just watch that opening scene from Hard Boiled. And it would just set me right for the rest of the evening. And I could like go on. But you can nitpick about stuff like that. But I think part of his artistry or part of what is so spectacular about him is he just sucks you in and you don't care. You know, there's other filmmakers who don't go for the action with quite as much gusto. So then you start paying attention to the script more and you're going, yeah, that doesn't make sense because they're not drawing your attention in other ways. But a film like this, yeah, I could care less. I mean, I I was when I watched the DVD, I was surprised kind of like, oh, well, that makes sense why some things were a little choppy in the script if the screenwriter died halfway through. Uh, So that clarified why it was the way it was. But I still adore that film no matter what. Yeah, there was supposed to be a whole story where Tony wasn't an undercover cop. He was a baby poisoner or he would poison baby food. Like, okay. 
And then Johnny Wong, eventually they made him into the bad guy. And luckily, Wu realized that he wasn't that tough of a bad guy. So he then added the Philip Kwok character, Mad Dog. And I'm so glad. I feel very validated because there's one line where they say, I'll take care of Mad Dog. And I just glommed on to that line and I would just be like, oh, that character. Yeah, Mad Dog, Mad Dog. And then luckily when I, I'm doing my research and people are just like, yeah, Mad Dog. I'm like, oh, okay, good. I, I feel really good because I've been calling him that for like 20 years. <laughs> and he's such a great character. And I just, I love him and the contrast between him and Johnny Wong. Just that he's got that code of honor, even though he's this horrible person, but yet that showdown that they have, and that showdown that they have in the hospital is so similar to one that happens, I think it's Better Tomorrow 2, where it's like there's the hired killer that comes in from wherever, and he has these like big sunglasses, and that same type of character shows up in like the killer and mad dog is very much that same type of of character where it's like we're not going to injure innocent bystanders we'll let these guys get away and then when johnny comes in and starts shooting everybody that's like you've gone too far now and i love that the the mad dog character in the raid shares that name because he's got that same kind of like just keeps plowing ahead and through people and you just can't stop him. So I like they shared the same name. And he's so cool when he leans over that flame and lights his cigarette. Oh, man. Even though he's like up until that point, you're like, oh, he's got to go down because he's bad. And then he lights and you're kind of going like, oh, man, but he's kind of cool. Maybe he can last a little longer, even though he's dangerous. I am so curious, Jess, what your thoughts are, having not really experienced too much Hong Kong cinema and and experiencing this one for the first time. In general, I'm not a huge action movie person, um, but I do tend to like uh, action movies in this vein that kind of all culminate to this one spot, sort of like you had mentioned in The Raid, where it's sort of a a siege on basically, all right, we got to fight this out. But uh, first of all, any movie that starts off with jazz clarinet is good with me. This score was great. I really did. I I liked the because it's not something that you get, especially in American action movies, which would be what my frame of reference is for the most part. Score is not really thought of too much, but I really enjoyed the jazz score that just plays all throughout this because it. You know, it's called Hard Boiled. It is a, a crime thriller. I would say probably it goes almost to a neo-noir. At least has some of those shades anyway. And I, I just really like the environment and the world that it created. Like, even though all of this violence and crazy shit is happening, I, I kind of, I wanted to be there. I'm like, I want to hang out in this world. I want to light my cigarette with a burning car. <laughs> I, I want to hang out and, and just, you know, drive the city with all these people in their terrible beige suits. This movie, you know, I can't speak for too many American action movies, but I did also really appreciate, I cared about the characters, or I was at least interested in the characters in this film, as opposed to most characters in most, you know, American action movies that I see that are all pretty, you know, cardboard cutout versions of what they need to be to get to point A to B to C. But these people, you know, 
Alan, in my version, Tony, evidently, in your version, Mike, uh, <laughs> Alan's a shit, but he's complicated. And tequila is also a shit and also complicated. And we actually get to spend enough time with these because I will also say that this movie is, what, two hours and eight minutes? So that that's generally a bit longer than what American audiences usually get in an action movie. So we actually get to sit with the characters a bit and let them breathe. And even, you know, some of the cheesier aspects that come with any action movie didn't seem as obvious here and didn't seem as hammy as they do in in other action films that I've seen. But I really dug all the violence. Being a big horror movie fan, I'm always going to be a fan of uh, the more blood in an action movie, the better. Uh, I will say that as we get, and you had mentioned it at the top of the podcast, uh, towards the end of the movie where we're primarily in a hospital setting in the baby ward with some baby trauma happening. Honestly, that was the only part that just kind of got on my nerves. And it's really, this is going to sound terrible, but I just cannot stand the sound of that many babies crying. (laughs) I just, I'm just like, make it stop. I also can't deny how awesome it is with Tequila running around with a baby in his arms. Now, mind you, that baby is deaf forever. (laughs) Well, he had cotton in his ears. Potentially shaken and damaged, but (laughs) still an awesome sequence. I was very surprised that I didn't read just a ton of articles talking about this movie and this being Wu saying goodbye to Hong Kong. And just all the themes of that that run through this film, there were people actively trying to say that Wu's films are apolitical. And I'm like, haven't you seen Bullet in the Head? Don't you remember this shot of the guy standing up to the tank, which was exactly like the shot of Tiananmen Square? And Wu's a very political filmmaker, and I don't care that people think that he's not because he is. And I'm just like, this is his last goodbye before he leaves the Tony character with all of his cranes and everything, letting them go at the end. It feels very much like a goodbye to everything, especially that you begin the film with all of these birds in cages. And one of the first lines at the tea house is the invasion is about to begin. Yeah, he's getting out before the Chinese take over Hong Kong again. And it just feels like that runs through this entire film. The idea of being invaded, the idea of being emasculated. Um, the, I mean, the whole thing at the end when, uh, Johnny is having tequila slap himself and say that he's impotent. All of this stuff. It's just like, yeah, this is how you're going to feel when the Chinese come in and, you know, when the mainlanders come in, I should say, you know, I don't buy that this is not a political film. I don't think of John Woo as a political filmmaker, but I think he's very socially conscious. I think dealing like very specifically with politics kind of dates your films, but I think the stuff, like the stuff you mentioned, Definitely has political overtones, but it's less tied to like a party and a, and a real like hard context. It's more about heroic acts of individuals and of notions of oppression or of sense. So I think I can kind of understand why people might say he's not political because I think it's kind of a, a less specific sense about him. And he's really got this sense of 
he's a very humanist filmmaker. Like he's very much about people who do the right things or do the wrong things for the right reasons or the right things for the wrong reasons. But he's very much into what motivates people and things that are morally right and wrong, regardless of other things that are going on. Yeah. And I think for him too, you know, part of that film was reflecting all the chaos that he felt was going on in Hong Kong at the time, because people just didn't know what was going to happen. Like, what's going to happen when mainland China comes back in and takes over? Are we are we going to still be Hong Kong as part of mainland China? Are we going to just be, you know, consumed by that huge beast? And, uh, you know, it was, it was interesting because I had this passion for Hong Kong cinema. So I was doing my best to interview as many people as I could from Hong Kong films as um, leading up to the changeover in 97. And I was asking all of them what their hopes and fears were, and also people from mainland China. And that was how I ended up getting my first NPR gig was because I had collected all this tape. And I said, hey, you know, Hong Kong's going back to mainland China. And I've interviewed like 14 different filmmakers about what's going on. And they all express this sense of huge uncertainty. You know, are we going to be censored? Are we, you know, going to have to submit our scripts? You know, how is this all going to play out? But, you know, the interesting thing, too, was filmmakers like Wong Kar Wai was actually sort of looking forward to it in the sense that he felt Hong Kong cinema suffered from marketplace censorship. You were so interested in making films that made money and that were commercial that that was a form of censorship. And he felt that when mainland China would take over, maybe more artistic films might have a chance because they don't necessarily have to make money if they're kind of prestigious films. But then you have to worry about the political censorship. So it was kind of like there's two different kinds of film industries going on and very different and what was going to happen when that merged or you know collided <laughs> you've actually talked with Wu and Chagan fat correct yes i have on multiple occasions it was great <laughs> what were their feelings about the changeover did you ask them that yeah you know chagan fat's a really interesting actor because he really is sort of a star by accident. Um, you know, when I went to interview him the first time, he walked to the hotel in L.A., like, without an entourage or anything, uh, you know, and met me. And, and, you know, when I talked to him, he was very like, uh, yeah, you know, I'd rather just be home cooking. Um, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, people ask me about. So he seemed almost a reluctant star. He was very kind of shy, in fact. And I was doing an article for Giant Robot, and they wanted to have him do a photo shoot. And he was just like, you know, I don't know what you want me to do. I, I don't know how, you know, I can't pose. I feel uncomfortable. And and my ex-husband at the time was a cigar smoker and he had these wooden matches. And I said, give me one of your matches. And I handed it to him. And suddenly Chow Yun-Fat was like, okay, now I can just be a character. You know, I can be Mark again. And I'll put this to the And suddenly he was transformed into this whole other person. So, you know, the, the sense of the changeover for him, I, I think, seemed less important because he wasn't really married to 
that job he had and he wasn't really a creator of films. You know, he was an actor who, you know, would get cast in them. And, uh, you know, the other thing he mentioned was, you know, I kept talking about his action films, like, oh, my God, this was so great. And he kept going like, well, you know, the actor I really admire right now is Rowan Atkinson because Mr. Bean is just the best. Like, I would love to be Mr. Bean. <laughs> and I mean, if you watch his comedy films, he is a marvelous comedian. Um, he was amazing uh, or is still, you know, amazing. But that's not the type of role people tend to give to him. You know, John Woo, I think, was at the time, you know, he was already – transitioning. So I think the idea, and I think that was one of the reasons why he wanted to move. So, you know, his concerns were less about, I'm going to be a filmmaker in Hong Kong, how do I deal with it? And more about like, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. So I want to get out of here so that I can still make the kind of films I want to make and not have to worry about it. You know, there were other films, like I said, Wong Kar Wai and, and Choi Hawk and Maggie Chung were filmmakers, I mean, um, Mabel Chung were filmmakers who were planning to stay. And, you know, their response was much more. And I think what they all expressed was just this really troubling sense of uncertainty. And what do you do if you want to be a filmmaker? And, you know, for a lot of those filmmakers, they don't, they didn't want to leave their country because they felt like that's part of what made the films they were making what they were. And John Woo felt that, you know, he wanted to make a different kind of film in a different place. And, you know, he was ready to move on at that point. Well, there's a lot of that idea that pops up throughout Hard Boiled a lot, right? The idea of I was born here and I'm going to die here. And that's whether it's, you know, I'm going to die here and it's still going to be the place that I wanted to be. That's questionable, but it is my home speaking as the general audience, <laughs> I don't know um, much about John Woo or Chow Yun-Fat's career. I don't, especially in how those things coincide with, you know, the political and government climate that, that was, continues to go on in China, uh, in particular, the divide between Hong Kong and the mainland. So it is interesting to hear you guys talk about this because watching this and, you know, having seen film, other other genres in the, you know, Chinese language films, other genres such as horror, all of those, I can pick up on certain commonalities and, you know, like subtext about what they're talking about in, in the grander sc scale of things when it comes to what's going on. But I don't know, like, the actual details it is interesting to hear you guys kind of break that down. And it is an interesting thing that, you know, you said that it was kind of his farewell letter to Hong Kong and that he was like, well, I do have to get out of Dodge if I want to continue to make movies. <laughs> the killer really broke him in the U.S., you know, though it was, and we talked about this before when we talked about A Better Tomorrow, you know, A Better Tomorrow was kind of like a, a a whole different way of him doing things because before that he was making all kinds of different genres, um, comedies, um, you know, old wouldn't, uh, in the old, old days making Chopsaki films, those kind of things. And then he moves to America and does a wide variety of stuff, almost to the point of self parody 
I talked about how we have birds in this movie, and having birds in a John Woo film is not uncommon. But when you watch something like this, and you see paper cranes, you see the birds in the cages at the tea house, it's very different than the doves that you get. Well, in the killer, of course, but it kind of makes sense there. But then once you start getting into, like, there's a shot in Paycheck where there are doves flying through the air, and I'm just like, where the fuck did those doves come from? This doesn't even make any fucking sense. I mean, they kind of work in Face Off. They don't necessarily work in Mission Impossible 2. I mean, it's always a symbol, you know, it's always a, a symbolizer of something, right? But there are ways to do it not so like you just threw birds at a camera. <laughs> yeah. But then he ends up going back to China and like, I think mainland China and making things like Red Cliff and Red Cliff 2 and The Crossing. And when I was in Shanghai, I was waiting for Manhunt to come out. But unfortunately, I, it came out after I left. So I was so excited. Luckily, I did get to see A Better Tomorrow while I was over there, like a revival screening with no did they have, yeah, they did have English subtitles, but they were some of the worst English subtitles I ever saw. And I did watch this. I was talking about how I watched one version where Tony Leung was Tony and the other one where he's Alan. And so I had the Hong Kong version up on my TV and I had the Taiwan version on my laptop. And seeing the difference in the subtitles was just hilarious because it was the Chinese and the English subtitles on the Taiwanese version. And then it was like nice, clean subtitles on the Hong Kong version I was watching. Man, it's so different. But luckily, there were a couple lines that they left in there. Like, when he has the baby and he shields the baby and he's like, ooh, X-rated action. Luckily, that line was the same in both of them. But he doesn't call the baby Saliva Sammy in the uh, the version that I watched yesterday. <laughs> so which is the Hong Kong? So so which version is it Alan? Is he called Alan? Uh, I think he's Alan in the Hong Kong version, and he's okay, Tony so in the so, Taiwan version. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I, I, wa so. I watched the Hong Kong version, so. which didn't have all of the differences that I remember. Because when I went to see it theatrically at the Michigan Theater years ago, the VHS version that I used to watch had these credits that looked like they were mimicking Goodfellas. It would have the the characters go across and then come back and say hard boiled, you know, and like the the name you know, John Woo's name would go across and then come back. It was that like Saul Bass type of credit sequence that Scorsese used in Goodfellas. Was it in that or was it in Bullet in the head where they use those. I do remember that what you were saying that I now that you mention it, I do remember those sliding titles, but now I can't remember specifically which film. I was pretty sure it was that, but I was unable to find a version with that on it yesterday. The ones that I was watching, they came out from the middle and like the yeah. hard boiled, I think was just two characters. And I was like, well, that's weird because I think it's four characters normally, but it just came out and and then it said hard-boiled underneath it. And I was like, okay, that's not what I'm used to. So that's kind of strange. And then also the shot at the end of uh, Johnny Wong when he gets shot in the eye. For years, I was like, well, that's a really weird cut. Like Because they would just cut to him and not show the the bullet striking and the, the blood coming out of the back of his head. And so it took me years before I was able to actually see that shot. And now it seems like that's in every version I watch. 
buying bootleg versions was so typical and it all depended, you know, were they bootlegging it off of another VHS, off of a laser disc, off of a VCD, what like, and, or, you know, was it somebody in a movie theater shooting it off the screen? There was so many different kind, or, you know, was it bootlegged from another country outside of Hong Kong where you might have, I don't know, Thai titles and then, you know, Cantonese and then English or something. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there was a lot of a lot of that craziness. Did your subtitles actually spell out effing like E F F I N G? Because mine did. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was looking at the Taiwanese version at that point, which did say fucking. And I always used to like it when they would say things in English and then you would get the English down below as subtitles. And sometimes it would match what they were saying and other times it wouldn't. But especially in like the Jackie Chan cop movies, you know, whenever they would respond to a superior officer, it'd be like, sir, yes, sir. And that, that would be all spelt out on the bottom. Blah, 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 blah. CID. Like you were saying, Beth, this opening action sequence is so good. And man, just you, you brought up the music. I love when the music cuts out. I love when mm-hmm. that moment that you were talking about, Beth, when he's on that railing and the music just like dies down and he just goes straight down that railing, just two guns blazing. And Chow Yun-Fat is one of the few people where it's just like, I believe that you can shoot as good with your left hand as with your right hand. He is just amazing when it comes to that. He's got so much style. Oh. I mean, geez, man, he looks good. He's got style and he's got this physical grace. And, you know, I, I think he... I think Wu is influenced a lot by like the Alan Delon character in Le Samurai. And you see that in Chow Yun Fat because they both share this like physical beauty and physical grace, like the way they move and they're just beguiling to watch and like anything he does. Like, yeah, you buy it. Totally. Oh, whatever. Yeah. He can, he can jump out of the building with the baby in his arms and everybody's going to be fine. All of these shots, like him using the mirror on the birdcage to check out the one guy who's behind him, and just all of these little pieces that are going together, it just works so well for me. And yeah, they're talking at this table. He and his soon-to-be ex-partner, Barry, are talking about leaving Hong Kong. And it's like, no, 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 I can't get Chinese food anywhere else. It's like, well, they have Chinese restaurants other places. He's like, yeah, not like these. When I first saw that film, when I first got it on Laserdisc or VHS, whatever format was the first one I got, I showed it to a friend of mine who is a cinematographer in L.A. Because I said, you've got to see this. Like, this this is amazing. And he watched it. And 10 minutes into that opening scene, he goes like, yeah. He says, you, you could never shoot anything like this in Hollywood because you've got so many rules and safety precautions and this and that. And he, you know, he looked at it and he was just like shaking his head in this kind of like, ah, yeah, if we could only. Part of that is very true. I mean, part of the reason why Hong Kong action films are so incredible and you can kind of follow this around the globe too is that Every country before rules and regulations set in have the craziest action films. And then as, 
you become more aware of like stuntmen safety and things like that. You know, and they start having actual stuntmen's unions and rules and regulations. You know, it, it crimps their style a little bit. So, you know, there's a very particular period of Hong Kong films where it re- really is just crazy and over the top and it starts to taper off and then it moves to, you know, Korea or to uh, Thailand or even a little bit in Japan. But, you know, each of those countries kind of as they became more famous for those films, then people start complaining like, hey, maybe we shouldn't put our actors and our stuntmen in danger quite so much. There's a great Korean documentary called Action Boys. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's a documentary about Korean stuntmen. You know, some of it is just brutal because you're going like, ow, like, what do you mean they didn't like take these precautions? And yeah, uh, you really, you really admire those guys for what they did. There's that shot in Police Story when Jackie's holding his gun and the bus stops uh, that they did in um, Tango and Cash. The bus stops and the two guys, or at least one guy, flies out the two. window. And they land, and you know that they landed not on the padding. And you see them writhing in pain, and you're like, that was real. That was yeah. Well, real. I think they were actually – I think the bus was supposed to be – or the car was supposed to be closer to the bus so that when they flew out the windshield, they would land on the car and then onto the ground. So instead, they go straight to the concrete, oh. which was brutal. And yes, you do – like, you just feel like, oh, my God, I'm watching people really get hurt. Ouch. Speaking of potential, like, really got hurt. I don't know. But the sequence in where I think it's probably middle, maybe towards the end of the film, where we have uh, the motorcycle gang. Uh, and one of them drives a motorcycle directly into a person in a box truck. I did rewatch that. And it looks like right when they cut to yeah. him being hit, that it's a dummy at that point. But yeah, right, like, that... Yeah, like that smashes it in there. But it's a great... I mean, it's cut that's a great extremely side. well. And it's oh, a yeah. great scene. And he just pummels the hell out of that dummy. So the movie has such an interesting structure that you start off with... Well, you start off at the jazz club, but then quickly we go into this action set piece. And then you've got that action set piece in the middle with the raid on uh, Mr. Hoy's place... And then you get the action set piece at the end. But then I was looking at the time yesterday, and it looks like the action set piece at the end, the hospital raid, that's basically the second half of the movie. It was one hour and nine minutes when I looked down, and I was like, wow, okay, this we are just arriving at the hospital now and going to be kicking this thing into high gear in just a few minutes here. They keep showing us all those babies. We know it's happening. Yeah, it's just amazing that they can maintain that. And I, I was listening to the commentary today, and I think Wu said something like they were, they shot in that hospital for over a month. And to the point where, like, they didn't know if it was day or night outside. They shot it all in this big warehouse where they made the set of the hospital. And he said that they ended up doing, there's a, an incredible, uh, one take inside of the hospital sequence. That just blows me away every time that I see it. And he was like, I wanted to do something different. And that really charged up the crew who were like pretty much desperate for the movie to end (laughs) at that point. (laughs) So yeah, he just, he says, Oh yeah, we rehearsed it for a day and then, uh, we shot it three times. And then this is what we ended up with. And I was like, Holy cow. 
And that's the one with the elevator doors where they, it looks like they're changing floors and they're not, but that was a really clever, clever uh, device to use. And on the commentary, I think, or in the interviews, uh, Terrence Chang talked about the fact that he got a call from the set going like, John's blowing things up. Yes. And I think he's blowing up too much. Can, can you please come down? And like John Wu apparently didn't talk to him for days after he was told, like, you got to tone it down a little. <laughs> we can't blow everything up. It was like the explosion guys were like, we have four times as many explosives as we need to blow this hospital up. <laughs> <laughs> In that sequence in the middle that I talked about with, with Mr. Hoy, that's in two halves. You know, you've got the, the first half with Tony coming in there and having to betray his boss, which to me is one of the most heartrending scenes of this film, especially the look that he has on his face. Oh, yeah. And how he manages to smile at Johnny As he Wong. goes by and then he oh, just rumbles then, at the end of and it. And then he cries. Oh, God. He's so, so good. I had a chance to interview Tony Lung for um, when he did In the Mood for Love. And one of the things he talked about is how he – he talked about how he was – as a child, he wasn't – he didn't talk a lot. And he had to convey everything with his eyes. And that's, like, one of the things that made him such a good actor, he felt. But – that scene totally encapsulates that. It's just without any words, you know absolutely everything that's going on in that character right then and there. The complete polar opposite feelings, what he has to convey, what he's really feeling, and how he's covering it up. It, yeah, that was a phenomenal moment. Oh, and then he grabs a machine gun and does away with all the guys that used to call him brother. I, and I was so, just to, to break a little bit, but I was so happy to see that Tony Leung's going to be in uh, Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings. The uh, trailer came out today, and I was just like, oh, wow, I just saw you yesterday in Hard Boiled. I had no idea that he was in that. And the director from that is from San Diego. I showed his student films. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> it's amazing. Like, you know, it's still... I, I mean, it still thrills me, and I feel like I feel like a parent or something. Even though you know, <laughs> I'm going like, oh, you know, somebody from here has you know, got, and he was Destin Cretton. I showed his first films. In fact, he said he had come to one of my student festivals, and he met a professor there um, who inspired him to go take film classes. And then he made a series of short films that were great. And he's like the nicest guy and this very kind of quiet, contemplative filmmaker. And I'm just so happy to see him, you know, move on. Never really thought about this until I was reading a different article yesterday about the way that and I was glad that Wu kind of pointed this out as well. The way that Chow Yun-Fat looks like a ghost after he rolls through the flower in that first battle. And then it's kind of like, because he ends up murdering a undercover police officer and he's kind of on the outs, you know, like his boss isn't a big fan of him. He's on the outs with his girlfriend, Teresa, uh, who keeps getting these white roses from Tony, the undercover agent or Alan. Hey, who's sending a woman those exquisite flowers? She's had a lot of them lately. Is that illegal? It isn't until the end he kind of comes back to life, and there's that incredible shot of him 
shooting out of the um the 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 morgue slabs at the end and i'm just like oh okay so it's kind of like his resurrection and i was just like that's a really nice way to think about it because he is back to being you know now he has a new friend he's got you know like he and tony have had this bonding moment in the underworld of the hospital it's almost like this orpheus story and then he comes back to life and now he is fully realized now he's tequila again and manages to have this like new family with he and Teresa and saliva sammy and i just i i love that it's like all these things being put back to the right towards the end of the film i just thought that was a really nice interpretation of it and I think when I had interviewed John, we talked about that scene, too. And I, I think another aspect of it was he, you know, it's interesting because his films are violent, but they're not realistically so. I mean, that's why you can take so much joy out of the action is because it's removed from kind of the gritty reality of it all. And part of it for him, too, was, you know, that helped kind of soften the violence of that really intimate shot where, you know, his gun is pointed just inches away from his own face and, you know, it sprays back on him. But these really are these kind of, you know, ballets of their, their dances. And he, he and Jackie Chan both talked about, you know, being influenced by people like Gene Kelly, where, you know, part of it is this sense of how do you choreograph the whole thing? And, you know, you don't want to chop it up a lot. You want to give people a sense of the whole thing because that's part of what kind of makes the impact. But they uh, they both had talked. To, I think both of them re- referenced Gene Kelly in particular and talked about that sense of you know how do you create this kind of dance and and you know his particular style is what has come to be known as this heroic bloodshed, which is you know this over the top kind of elegant, stylish. Chow Yun Fat was perfect for that. And that's, you know, one of the things he, that John Wu talked about was, you know, he saw in Chow Yun Fat this kind of what he called a sense of chivalry that he felt he wanted to have in his characters and that he felt like he embodied those qualities. I always like the way that he does that kind of Sam Peckinpah thing. We haven't mentioned his use of slow-mo, which mm. we've talked about before in other uh, episodes about Wu, but that idea of... Um, you know, talking about cutting it up too much, but we will get those ideas of like a character falling, like a, um, one of the members of Johnny's crew or somebody being shot. And we start to see him fall in slow motion. And then we get all of this other stuff. And then we get to see the rest of the fall in slow motion. It's just like all of this stuff is happening at once. And just, yeah, talk about a dance of destruction. All of the things that happen in that warehouse in that middle section is just amazing. And like I said, you start off with the raid and all of these guys coming in and then they like clean up everything. And then you get the section with Mr. Hoy coming in and the betrayal and the murder of, uh, of the rest of Hoy's guys. And then cue that music. And all of a sudden, all those smoke bombs come in and then Chow Yun Fat just slides down that rope into the fray. And it's just him against what, 200 guys or something. <laughs> but it's Chow. It's Chow Yun Fat. He can do whatever the fuck he wants. And that incredible scene all in the smoke of he and Tony finally like properly meeting because they had had like one interaction before where, uh, he, hits Chow in the face with the butt of his gun. 
to basically protect him because he doesn't want to see a fellow officer killed. But those two coming together and that moment that we got from the killer, but now it's two cops going against each other with their guns drawn and that he pulls the trigger on Tony. It's just like, oh, man. (laughs) And then Tony just uncocking his gun and basically fading back out into the smoke again. It is so great. And that expression he has, too, because once again, you get to see like all these layers of it's the fear, then the relief, then kind of the irony, and then kind of like, I'm going to let this go. I mean, it just all that Quicksilver change that goes on in his reaction is great. I realized something yesterday when I was rewatching it, just how much Tony relies on codes. Because there's the code of the white roses. There's the code of the song that comes with the white roses and the whole thing being translated. Interestingly enough, it's all translated in English. It's not translated in Chinese, which is interesting. And then there's also the code of his cranes because he will send messages to Teresa with the roses and with the code and then he sends a message to Tequila with putting a crane on uh, the ch- the tray that goes into, call him Little Co in one version, or Foxy in another version. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but that's great that he's able to communicate with all these, but he's like so buried in being this undercover agent that he can only really communicate through code. I'm curious if for his character, like those things help compartmentalize what he's doing and kind of give him a way to excuse certain things. I mean, that's especially true, I think, with the, the, the cranes. You know, it's this sense of, you know, I'm remembering these people that have killed and didn't want to. But I think it's that sense of order he places on chaos in a sense, which is also kind of what Wu is going through with all the chaos he feels is going on in Hong Kong. And it's like, how do you, you know, how do you organize that stuff so that it doesn't scare you or overwhelm you? You know, it's kind of like the idea of people who have superstitions or you place order on things that seem totally random, because if they are totally random, or if they are like, out of your control, then it's more terrifying than if you kind of find some way to place your control over it. This idea of chaos versus order, the idea of old versus new, I mean, we kind of saw that in The Killer with um, uh, Feng Shuian as the newer crime boss, and then like uh, Sydney Chow Yun-Fat's mentor in that. And in this, you have Mr. Hoi versus Johnny Wong, where, you know, Hoi is there like, what is he, cutting up apples and stuff for his boys? And just they're like, oh, he always treats us like uh, we're his kids and he's our dad and everybody's so happy over there. (laughs) I mean, it's a little unrealistic because... gang to belong to. Yeah. I mean, they are... (laughs) planting guns and cars and stuff. So they're not necessarily on the up and up, but everybody's so happy at Mr. Hoy's and he's all about honor and all of these things. And Johnny just has no honor. And it's to me, it's that thing again of like, this is the old way. This is the new way. And the new way is going to be the way after 1997. Yeah. And Johnny's a little psychotic as 
only Anthony Wong can do. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> Talking about the Taiwanese versus the Hong Kong version, the Taiwanese version has different color grading. So you get to see all of those pockmarks on Johnny <laughs> Wong, on Anthony Wong's face, which makes him look even more evil to me. And crazy. Oh, yeah. He's so crazy. I love when he's in the hallway and he's got the detonator and just that, like, he's not even looking at the detonator and it's almost like he's looking out from under his eyes and just, he, <laughs> oh man, he can pull that off like nobody's business. He is so good at being crazy. What was the, the human pork buns? Oh God. <laughs> I always forget what the real title is. Is that, I think that is the title, but I, I can't remember. But yeah, he plays the psychotic killer who makes human pork buns out of the people he kills. But he was crazy in that. Well, him and going back to the heroic trio, him and the heroic trio where he's got the flying guillotine and he'll pull people's heads off with it. And I don't even think he ever says a word in that movie. He doesn't have to. Apparently, people were not thrilled by the idea of these babies being in danger at the end of this movie. And I was like, to talk about the heroic trio, I was like, didn't you guys ever see that movie? I mean, a baby dies in that movie. A baby gets a nail through the back of its head in that movie. Damn. It's one of the most horrific things, but it's like a baby dies versus these babies just being in danger. And a baby, you know, saving Chow Yun-Fat's life, which is pretty cool, too. Well, I think Asian films have a lot less respect for the innocence of childhood and, and babies than Americans do. Americans have a far harder time killing off children and babies, but Asian films, less so. And I, I think they were, um, when I, from one of the interviews on the bonus features, it seemed like they were more upset at the idea of having a baby killer as the center of the film, and they kind of... The residual effect of that was the babies in peril <laughs> at the end. So it was kind of like not quite as bad as what we originally planned, but we'll still have them. And for me to overread again, here you have the next generation of Hong Kong citizens and they're all in danger. I think Wu also talked about the fact that the babies to him were also a sign of hope as well. So, you know, despite all the horrific things that are going on, there's still this potential for something good and something positive, whether it's true or not. And I was so glad when Teresa gets to shoot a guy pretty much point blank. That was pretty great. I really like her character. I know she's not nearly as present as, say, like a Jenny or somebody, but I just think that she's got a little bit more substance to her than some of the other female characters from Wu's films. And I like her. I really like his supervisor, uh, Philip Chan. I like finding out that he actually was a police inspector for a while. and That was great! I had no clue. Me neither. He's got s such a great face. Yes, and I love how he talked about the fact that when he was a cop, they told him he was not dressing like a cop and he looked like too suave or something. And then when he started auditioning for roles, everybody cast him as a cop because they said, oh no, you look exactly like a cop. I, th <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. And I was looking at some of his character roles, and it's like, inspector this, inspector yeah. that, <laughs> superintendent this, superintendent that. But then I didn't realize that he actually like wrote and directed a bunch of movies as well. So it's like, surprise, surprise. Now I have to go see Inspector Chocolate from 1986, <laughs> just based on the name alone. Yeah, that would, I love those bonus features. Sounds like a missing black exploitation movie. <laughs> 
some of those titles are just, you know, uh, where's Officer Tuba? It's probably one of my favorite titles ever. <laughs> Where is <laughs> Officer Tuba, Mike? <laughs> Wouldn't you like to know? They're like in this in a similar vein of, of like, uh, you know, Giala titles where it's all just like weird long sentences. Like your room is, your vice is a locked room and only I have the key. Yeah, Giallo titles have hands down though yeah, the best, the, the best. best weirdest like <laughs> yeah, lizard in a woman's skin. <laughs> yeah, I guess they outdo spaghetti western. So I do like spaghetti western titles. They're pretty a lot. good too. Yeah, yeah. heads Cemetery. heads you die, tails I kill you. Oh, yeah. only God forgives. I don't. <laughs> That's got to be hands down my favorite. Isn't there one about toilet paper is cheap or something? I'll have to look that one up. That sounds sort of familiar. Have a a good funeral, friend. Sartana will pay. Yes. (laughs) We did a a Spaghetti Western and a Giallo film series here. And like the titles were, I was going like, how many titles can we string together to make a sentence? To make a whole line, maybe almost a couple pages worth of (laughs) Yeah, we could write a whole story just using (laughs) Giallo and Spaghetti Western titles. Maybe a few (laughs) verbs in between. I do really love the music in this. We've talked about that a few times, but I have been looking for the song that Tequila plays at the jazz bar for years, and I swear I heard it once in the wild, but I've never been able to track it down because it's just, I love it. And I mean, I'm a former clarinetist, or I guess once you're a clarinetist, you're always a clarinetist. So I'm like, sure, great, great clarinet song. And I get to, you know, picture Barry back there playing the drums in Mr. Wu's club. I do like that John Wu is the voice of reason. And apparently he was saying that they just kind of talked when they were on set and then they wrote the dialogue later and dubbed everything because all of these movies were dubbed. So again, very similar to Italian movies. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah Marcello Mastroianni said, you know, you, you count to 10 with emotion. Yeah, I had a friend recently asking me about, like, well, where where's the original Italian version of this giallo and that giallo? And I was like, well, <laughs> yeah, talking about how loud it was outside of Chinichita, and then also thinking about how I think a lot of the studios in Hong Kong, or at least some of the major ones, were in the flight path of the airport. So it's like, yeah, no, that's not going to work. I mean, could you imagine like shooting or like the raw sound in that kitchen? I mean, that being that close, it was that would be awful. At least they got the actors to dub themselves. I mean, I'm pretty sure that these are the voices that I'm hearing. Like after a while, you can tell when it's not Chow Yun Fat speaking. Yeah. So, but I'm not as familiar with everybody else's voices, but definitely Chow is is dubbing himself. Definitely the main the main like three seem to be accurate based on. How I've heard those people speak. There's a, a point when they're in the hospital and somebody asks Tequila what his name is and he gives a name and I almost think that that's the character name from the killer. I wasn't sure about that though because he definitely says Jeff something and I know it was Jeff in the killer, at least most versions that I have watched. Again, could be Jeff, could be Along. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> It's really hard for me to rewatch The Killer. I love that movie, but it breaks your heart and then steps on it and then chops it up in little pieces. Oh, <laughs> that shot of them crawling. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. It's, it's brutal. Uh, yeah, I have. I mean, I've watched Hardboil 
probably like a hundred times, but maybe the killer, like maybe three, because it hurts. Korean films are like that too. I, the way I always describe a Korean film is it makes you care a lot about the characters and then it does horrific things to them for a long time. <laughs> That's just the way they, and no matter, even when they're like looking like they're happy endings, I'm going like, no, in the final second, they're going to rip my heart out again. So sometimes they're hard to rewatch despite the fact that I love them. But Hard Boiled is one, and like Once a Thief, those are two John Woo films that I can just watch endlessly. Are we all pretty sure that Alan slash Tony is still alive at the end of Hard Boiled? I am going to say yes, because that's what I want to believe. Right. Okay. (laughs) That's what I want to believe, too. It feels like he is. Yeah. And I'm glad that there's a little bit of closure after this, the idea of them burning the file and, you know, it feels like things are set right at the end. And the idea of the cranes being let loose and seeing Tony there kind of ride off into the sunset. I think literally he's going off into the sunset. He's John Woo leaving for Hollywood. He is totally John Woo leaving for Hollywood. About to make his acquaintance with Mr. Jean-Claude Van Damme. Oh, God. <laughs> who Jean-Claude brought over a lot of those guys. He gave the first American films to, I think, Ringo Lamb and Choi Hawk and Ronnie Yu, I think, was it? Or I don't know. But but he gave like the first American films to a number of those Hong Kong directors. When I noticed this time, there's a part where... I think Mad Dog has a gun that only takes one bullet at a time. And I was like, oh, okay. So he probably gave that over to uh, Lance Henriksen for Hard Target. Well, because Mad Dog only needs one right. bullet at a time. That's right. And he also did, he was the stunt coordinator on that, Philip Kwok, which was yeah. amazing. Apparently, they met on Once a Thief. And he yeah. was like, yeah, I like you a lot. And he did all the the choreography of that tea house scene, mm-hmm. which apparently the, they had five days to shoot in the tea house before they were going to tear it down. So it's that same kind of goodbye to old Hong Kong kind of thing, because it was, you know, probably going to be raised and made into condos or something. And we do get the uh, little bit of tequila talking about how expensive it is to live in Hong Kong. And his his boys are telling him to go stay at the YMCA, which I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> if only he were married, then he could get his own house. Yeah, but Madam won't, won't give him the time of day for a little while. She's there too busy uh, singing lyrics from Hello and Mona Lisa. It took me so long before I made the connection between what she sings and Lionel Richie's Hello. I was just like, oh, that's kind of nice. And then finally, one day it just clicked and I was like, that's Lionel Richie that she was singing. I do always appreciate when she starts to sing and her boss is just like, Are you somewhere feeling lonely? Thank you. You're welcome. All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back right after these brief messages. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 3. The Doctor Who Method Give the character the ability to completely alter his appearance, and thus be played by any available actor. This also lets the character evolve into suitable form for any given audience. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast www.britishinvaders.com 
Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Catchers, both Android and iOS. It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, the projection booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven hour Conan episode, the six hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. We are back, and we were talking about hard-boiled. I kind of stepped on myself there by already talking a little bit about the differences between the Taiwanese and Hong Kong cuts. This is not nearly the version differences that I've seen in things like uh, like talking about the killer. The killer Taiwan version is so different and has so much extra stuff, has this whole thing about well, I think we see Jeff save Jenny in the theatrical version, but then we get kind of an echo scene of uh, Danny Lee's character saving Jenny and more like potential romance between those two. There's like a whole bunch of stuff in that one. Whereas with this, I really didn't see that many differences. And then looking at, there's a great website out there called moviecensorship.com and they did a comparison. It was like, couple extra frames here, a second there, an extra shot of this. And like I said, I watched them two, you know, two monitors yesterday. And I just, other than a speed difference in the Taiwan version, I wasn't seeing that much of a difference between the two. Just a couple times, I'd be like, oh, these shots are in different order, but nothing huge. No, it seemed very subtle, the differences. You know, if I wasn't watching like with a conscious effort to remember like how do they compare 
I'm not sure I would have even noticed that much. No. And then, like I said, I couldn't find the version with the credits that I remembered watching. And you could be right, Beth. I could just be completely misremembering, but I thought for sure it was. Yeah, um, it's possible. Now you make me want to go back and check all my versions. What is the uh, intent behind the Taiwanese version, the Hong Kong version, all the different versions? Censorship, I would assume, goes into play in these various versions. Yeah, sometimes it's a case of censorship. Sometimes it's it's almost like they got a different version released to them or like with this one, it almost felt like it was a rougher cut and they trimmed it up for the Hong Kong version. So they're just like various versions of of, of rough cuts, basically. (laughs) You know, we talked a little bit when we were talking about a better tomorrow and, and talking about the different versions of uh, bullet in the head bullet in the head is incredibly different depending on what version you see of that. Like, when I saw that theatrically, it ended with one thing, and then I'm watching it on VHS, probably rented from that uh, Chinese grocery store, and the ending that I'm expecting doesn't come, and this whole other ending that lasts like another 15 minutes happens, and I'm like, what is this? I've never seen this before in my life, and you just feel like you're crazy, because you're like expecting the one ending, and then something completely different happens. It's like, did I just slip into a pocket universe? Well, I think some films had more troubled production history, too, where for a variety, variety of reasons, either they needed to rush the film out and Hong Kong. I mean, Chai and Fat talked about shooting like 12 films in one year once. Um, so, you know, they were cranking that stuff out at the peak of the industry. So I'm sure there was pressure to get films out quickly. And there are probably different versions based on like, oh, we have a chance to re-release it or we have a chance two months later to send it to Taiwan. We'll like add. And then for Bullet in the Head in particular, I think there were some talk about political issues. I think there were some things that couldn't be shown or done depending on which of those countries you were sending the print out to. So that one in particular, I think, had a lot of different reasons for potentially having multiple versions. But I think, you know, Hard Boiled was not like it didn't really run into censorship issues and it, you know, it, it wasn't excessively long so that they might want a shorter version of it to, you know, hit the grind times in a theater or something. But bullet in the head, I totally understand why there were. That second ending that I saw was so wildly different. Just the, um, I believe people are calling it car foo. Just them, like our main character <laughs> and the guy who ends up being the bad guy in that, just going after each other with their cars and jousting and stuff. And I'm like, what the hell, man? Like, I like the version where he comes in with his friend's head with the bullet wound in it and does the, uh, the man who would be king ending and just sets it on the table and leaves. And it's like, Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's a way to end this movie. <laughs> that's the ending I remember. Yeah. But yeah, there's a yeah. whole other ending out there that, just goes on forever of them jousting with these cars. It is wild. And that was the only version I was able to find for the longest time to the point where I thought I was crazy with the man who would be King ending finally found it on of all things, a VCD. I would love to see, I think 
Fortune Star finally put out like the definitive version of that a few years ago that has because yeah, there's a lot of like little differences throughout it and then like major differences more towards the end. And I think they put everything in and then had the man who would be king ending as a as an extra and then left the Carfu ending as the uh the final the as the, hmm. the version that you see. But yeah, with this one it was not like, oh, there's a whole other character that's missing from this or one of those things. I'm not a gamer at all, so I have never played this movie or sorry, this game called Stranglehold from 2007, which apparently is a video game sequel to Hardboiled to the point where they even had Chow Yun Fat do Tequila's voice again in this. Wow, that's, yeah, that's pretty interesting. I've never heard of it. Yeah, I remember when that came out. As I was watching this, I was, you know, thinking about the, this would be a, a Japanese game, but the Japanese game came out for the PlayStation. There's a few of them, but the Yakuza game series had, it has a similar just kind of vibe, just obviously with the way, because it's set also in the 90s and how everybody dresses and music and everything is pretty on the spot, but obviously it's Yakuza versus, in, instead of Triad, but same similar crime industry. <laughs> But you got to have the chow moves yes. in Stranglehold, where you get to spin and shoot. I, I don't know what they called it. Like I don't know if it's chow style or whatever, but you got to uh, <laughs> you got to move more like him. But it's funny seeing footage from that game now and knowing like the comparison between the two is like night and day because you know technology has come so far. Some of those moves look so awkward. Had I known that there was this game, I probably would have tried to have tracked it down and played it forever ago. But yeah, I I had no idea. And by now it's probably, I mean, 2007 is like ancient history for video games, right? That was about the time when, you know, I was taking my son to video game stores to buy games. And I remember seeing it and going like, hmm, would you consider buying that one? Because mom might be interested in playing that one. But no such luck. I mean, I did talk about how he just flies around. I loved, like, when I was watching it on the Plex yesterday, the poster image that came up was just him with the shotgun, like, flying through the air. <laughs> it's like, that's pretty awesome. That's a great, great image. Because he can. He can, yeah. <laughs> I mean, when he comes into Tony's boat, he doesn't go down the stairs he kicks off and flies into tony and like puts the gun up against his head it's just like holy shit it's like the man is flying around in this uh in this movie and i could definitely see him flying around in the video game too yeah he does spin around and slide down banisters and like do all the signature chow moves i always felt bad that Chow Yun Fat and John Woo never got back together again especially in the u.s you know was- i know and it was it was cracking me up listening to one of the audio commentaries where Roger Avery was on it, and I'm just like, okay, what are you doing on here? Yeah. <laughs> but then he's like, oh yeah, I'm uh, writing a movie, and John Woo's going to direct it, and I'm just like, yep, sure he is, sure he is. He's like one of those directors that just has had so many things attached to his name that never happened. Well, and I think it's a real shame that when Hollywood imported Chow Yun Fat, they missed one of his chief charms, which is his sense of humor. They made him so serious in Replacement Killers and The Corrupter, and he's so charming. 
And how can you, how can you just ignore that part of his character? I mean, John Woo is the one who I think understands him the best in terms of how to really make him shine in a movie. And it's a shame that these American films just completely miss the boat. I really haven't seen him in anything since the one of the Pirates movies where he showed up. <laughs> oh, no, that happened? Oh. Which one did that happen in? Oh, it's World oh, End. Oh, it yeah. must have been one of the later ones. Well, he was also in the Zhang Yimou film, um, Curse of the Golden Flower. I have a funny story about Chai and Fat from that press junket because – I was trying, I had gotten interviews with Zhang Yimou and Gong Li, and they said, well, we're trying to get you Chow Yun-Fat, but he's being really difficult. And I was thinking, like, man, that doesn't really sound like him. Like, he's a really nice guy. And the publicists were, like, really irritated by him. They were just like, oh, you know, he's being so difficult. And they came in and they go, well, he's here, but we don't really think that, you know, you're going to get an interview. But we'll go in and we'll ask. And they were all cranky, and, like, they went in. Five minutes later, they came out of the suite where they were doing the interviews giggling like schoolgirls, and they come out and they tell me like oh he's wonderful oh my god he's like the nicest man oh my god yes you have the interview <laughs> it's just i was thinking like you know i knew all he had to do was like turn on that chow char <laughs> and like and he would win you over but it was so funny that it was just like night and day they were just totally totally taken in by him and i my most embarrassing moment ever as a journalist is probably a, an interview I did with Chow. The second interview I did with him was a press junket, which is, you know, very kind of formal. And But it had been this like rainy day and we drove up to LA, my audio guy and I, and it was a storm. We barely got there on time and we get into the room and I come in and Chow Yun-Fat walks up to me and he kissed me on both cheeks and says, Beth, how are you? How are things in San Diego? I forgot every question in my head. My audio guy was laughing at me. And I mean, I know his publicist probably said, well, this is Beth from San Diego, you know, but it was like, I was like those, those girls in the audience at a hard day's night with the Beatles. Like, that's how I felt. Like, <laughs> totally unprofessional, away. totally unprofessional. And just like, Chai and Fat kissed me on my cheeks. I will be the, not the devil's advocate, but the angel advocate on this one, because I've run into celebrities before who I haven't seen in years, and they will remember your name. I think that's some celebs, like, secret powers. Like, that's their their That's thing. possible. Could be because they have to memorize stuff all day long when it comes to lines. Who knows? But maybe he re really remembered you, Beth. Maybe. I remember doing the first interview with him, and... and Going back to my ex-husband going like, you know, if he asked me to go away with him right there at that interview, I would have done it. I'm sorry. <laughs> so the reason why is your ex-husband and, and Mr. Yes. Fat is your new husband. Mr. Potential. He was just charming and just so like not a celebrity type at all. Like just very down to earth. And he loved to talk about cooking. I've heard that he gives away so much of his money to charity. I think so. I've heard I've heard that, too. When Wu came over and he made his film with uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme, I was just like, okay, that's cool. I like Hard Target a lot. I like the Raimi influence on it. I just, I, I appreciate a lot about it. And then he made Broken Arrow and I was like, wait, 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 wait. 
you got to get Chow over here, man. What are you doing? <laughs> Why are you making this movie with Christian Slater and, and John Travolta? You need to get Chow Yun Fat. You need to get back on that wagon. Let, let's get some of these good movies coming out again. I mean, Broken Arrow, I probably saw it twice at the theater and maybe a couple times on VHS since then or cable. Face Off is its own thing. Yeah. But after that, I mean, I really thought that I liked Mission Impossible 2 until I rewatched it recently. And I was just like, oh my God, if they pull off their faces one more fucking time, I'm going to hit the roof. I just remember loving the motorcycles and that. The motorcycles were pretty cool. and it, They were cool. And it reminded me a lot of Hard Boiled. I was like, oh, cool. Mm-hmm. This is the motorcycle stuff. This is Mad Dog sliding across the floor with um, two machine guns blasting all these guys before he like stands up and f- turns around and then blasts another guy. It's like, okay, cool. But he kind of lost me with a lot of that. And then, I mean, like I said, paycheck. Just, I was like, what are you doing? For some filmmakers... The challenges that they had, like in their original countries or challenges they've had for whatever reason, make them the better filmmaker. And in Hollywood, you know, sometimes, you know, John Woo's coming over, they're impressed by what he's done. He has a a success with Face Off and they say, yeah, do whatever you want or we'll give you money and you can do this. And when you don't have somebody pushing back at you, sometimes you're less creative. Like you do the the crazy thing you had in your head rather than being told, no, you can't do that. And then having to think of something more clever or more innovative to get whatever you wanted to do done in some ways, you know, because I think Redcliffe is better than anything he did in the U.S. except for maybe face off and hard target. Well, the idea of, again, having rules for your stunt people and the way that stunt people are treated between the two countries. I mean, from what I understand, they know that the stunt people are gods in Hong Kong. So they treat them properly like that. They're, I was hearing that they are employed like all year long. And so they don't have to worry about the breaks in between films because they're almost always working and they'll just come in and be like, Oh, what do you want us to do? Oh, you want us to jump off of that? Okay, sure. Yeah, we'll do that. No problem. The other th- that's really different is just the whole style of shooting. You know, in Hollywood, I mean, with some exceptions, I mean, like the original Mission Impossible went to shoot without a script, but that's not typical. But, you know, in Hollywood, they want things more planned. What are you going to do this day? Where are you going to be here? Here's the time frame for that. We have to plan the stunts in advance or whatever. But in Hong Kong, a lot of it is that sense of spontaneity and improvisation. And, you know, you get on a location and you look like, ooh, what about that railing up there? Like, that's pretty cool. How can we use that? Or I didn't know we were going to have four stories. We can do this cool thing with the stairwell, whatever it is. And I think, you know, the stunt people react in the moment and improvise. And I think the filmmakers do to a degree as well. I mean, filmmakers like Wong Kar Wai talk about like he's like a jazz musician and he just goes out and improvises. And, you know, that's a very different style of filmmaking. And for good or bad... If you come over to a completely different style and you have to kind of think all your stuff out in advance and you lose some of that spontaneity, I don't know, maybe that's changed him as a filmmaker and changed, you know, the way he thinks and has impacted kind of what we end up with on screen where it's a little different, you know, in Hong Kong. And 
even if he might not have liked where the industry was going at the time he left, you know, that's the industry that created the type of person he was and the type of artist he was. And maybe that's, that's part of the issue. I don't know. But definitely there's a difference between Hong Kong Wu and Hollywood Wu. <laughs> I think the closest we get will be hard target and then a little face off. But yeah, the rest of them, I'm just like, yeah, this feels very neutered. Hong Kong films have an ability to give us melodrama in a way that we love it. I, I can't explain what this means, but like the melodrama in Hong Kong films, Infernal Affairs and stuff, like you just lap it up. And when you get the melodrama in American films, I don't know if it's because it's in English and it plays different. You know, it's like pop songs in English sound more sappy than a pop song in Japanese, but... I don't know what it is, but like the Koreans and, and the Hong Kong and the Chinese filmmakers, like they can make me buy into that melodrama, like nobody's business. And in American films, I'm just kind of like, eh, you guys, it feels icky. Like, stop it. Like, just go do something else. But, you know, John Woo and Chow Yun Fat in those movies and The Killer and even Once a Thief and Better Tomorrow. I mean, that is such high melodrama and crying and, you know, all this emotion. And it works, but it doesn't work as well in the American films. There's that moment in Hard Boiled where after Tony has killed some people, he's out on his boat and he's screaming to the heavens kind of thing. And if you put another actor in there, an American actor, I don't know if I would have bought it. But with Tony Leung in there, I was just like, yes, that yeah. that works for me. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. That's right. Talk about a different film. We're going to talk about cuties next week. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Beth and Jess. So, Jess, what has been keeping you busy, ma'am? I am frequently on two podcasts, my very own with uh, frequent projection booth fixture, Chris Stashew. We host the Scary Stories We Tell podcast, which is a podcast about all things that go bump in the night. Uh, so if you want to hear us talk about that, check us out there. You can also hear us talk about television that lasted one season on the One Season Show. 
And I also am occasionally on Chris's show, The Culture Cast, which is, as he would refer to it, projection booth light. (laughs) (laughs) And Beth, what is happening with you? Well, I am in the midst of relaunching my Cinema Junkie podcast. We're going to go through a little bit of a format change, and I'm going to, looks like I'm going to be adding some cooking elements to it in a, in a companion like YouTube video section. So I'm going to get to play with all my, uh, I love doing themed food for film screenings and for, uh, movies that I show and doing all sorts of fun, creative, tasty items. So this is going to let me tap into that side of what I do and uh, then continue doing the podcasting. I'm uh, the reporter at KPBS, arts reporter there, and I freelance for NPR. So you can look for my stuff there. And in San Diego, I run a, a film group called Film Geek San Diego. And right now, because of this pandemic, we're doing online screenings. So you can check us out at Film Geeks SD on Facebook. Beth, I have to hand it to you. When you do screenings or would do them in person before the pandemic, the outfits, the <laughs> desserts or main courses, just all that stuff, I would just salivate over your photos <laughs> because it'd be like, she is so into whatever they're showing. And sometimes I would just see a picture of the dessert that you had made and I'd be like, oh, I bet you they're showing this. <laughs> so good. So good. Well, I'm so glad you can guess the film by looking at the dessert because that's exactly what I'm trying to do. But yeah, <laughs> I have to hone my skills. My my first cooking segment was how to make edible blood because that's one of my favorites. Nice. I love giving it to children and telling them to go scare their parents. Like, okay, just wipe this around your face a little bit and scream and run into the house and see what your mom does. I love what a bad influence you are. (laughs) That was the hit of some Girl Scouts who came to visit KPBS. I just happened to have edible blood at my desk and the, somebody was bringing the kids around for a tour and I was like, Oh, I have just something for you guys here. All of you, you can dip your fingers in this and and smear it on your face and then run around the building and tell people you're like bleeding from the mouth and whatever. I love it. (laughs) Well, thanks again, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. (laughs) 